This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. So tonight, I'm going to talk about a topic that a few listeners have brought to my attention over the past couple of years. I've always been a little trepidatious to do it because it's quite a controversial topic. But sometimes we just need to remember history so that we do not repeat it. Shit is just crazy in this world. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Yep. And hopefully the middle of an uprising that will change the way that America deals indoctrinated and institutionalized racism that is rampant in our society. And I only say this because in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, this topic, you'll you'll see. So back to the topic at hand which is the shameful display of humans that was widespread in Europe and the Americas during the Victorian era. Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about the history of human zoos. Oh, no. okay. Shit. Okay. <laughs> right. So if you've never heard of a human zoo. It's awful. Or a display of a cultural display is kind of how it was touted. Um, this might sound shocking to you. You may not believe that it existed, but it most certainly did. Yeah, it did. And it is well, well, well documented. So enjoy your research if you do not believe me. I really do think that, you know, after your story, I think that people should research it and get more knowledge on it and a little more understanding because it is i'm sorry continue yeah. i'm sorry continue I'm i know very, that you know uh, i know that you know this story and I, I i we've gotten quite a few emails and you know instagram messages over the past few years that we've been doing this podcast and people consistently bring it up and i'm always like you know just leery to do it because it is not awesome it is it's not, a topic that is it's not easy to tell it, that's for sure. It's not an easy story to tell because there's no way. It's very difficult to find a way to tell the story without sensationalizing it mm-hmm. because it deserves a certain dignity and reverence. Yeah. You can't hold back though either. You know, it's, and it's, yeah. because these people were humans and the things that were done to them are not amazing. <laughs> They're very, very, very terrifying. Anyway, so we've talked a lot in other episodes about the changes that came about as the world industrialized in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. The Victorian era also brought about a time where people for the first time had disposable income. And we all know that supply meets demand. And as people had more disposable income, more ways and more methods of entertainment came up like we talked about this with like pt barnum we talked about this with boardwalks and the i loved yeah i loved how you how you refer to as entertainment because 
if if you if you think of you going to an animal zoo, you go there for entertainment. Yes. So if you consider the fact that 20 years before where I'm talking about, so let's say let's you know, hit like 1850, 1860. Oof. Like pre <laughs> pre-industrialization. Yeah. People didn't make that living that like wage weekly that they could learn to like budget and spend and have money to buy things that were frivolous, that were not immediate necessities. I think that, you know, you had the rich and then you had the not rich. And those people did not have, there was no real middle class in Europe in the mid 19th century. But as we get more into the Victorian age and the Gilded Era, or the Gilded Age and the Victorian Era, I said that backwards, the Gilded Age and the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian Era, people have more disposable income. And we've talked about this during, you know, a bunch of other topics about how this era just sort of spurned along, you know, stories that are distasteful to us today. But they are stories that have to be told. Well, we call the the podcast Notorious Narratives because they are stories that are notorious throughout history. So this is one of them. Over four centuries from the first voyages of discovery, European societies developed an appetite for exhibiting exotic human, quote unquote, specimens. These specimens were shipped back to Paris, London, and Berlin for the interest of appealing to a crowd. While it is human nature to be curious about how other people live, it is a very different thing entirely to place humans on display, to be gawked at and judged. While this may seem abhorrent by today's standards, it was not so long ago that people flocked in droves to see the exotic people. Exotic people? Oh, God. What started as wide-eyed curiosity on the part of observers turned into ghoulish pseudoscience in the mid-1800s as researchers sought out physical evidence for their theory of different races. Their theory of different races. You know, because... It's amazing at how, you know, unless you're, you are a explorer and you travel to all these different locations... And you write about it and something is written about it. Some people didn't really like to read that kind of stuff because they didn't really want to know what else was out there other than their own day-to-day stuff and what's going on, what's happening, what's tomorrow going to be like. And so they just always kind of feared the difference that was around them all the time. Right. They feared the unknown. Yeah. Had no interest in it. And then there were those who were explorers. And I mean, I'm sure that some of them were kind-hearted and actually interested in different cultures no. but for the most part those explorers they just wanted to make money. felt that they were superior yeah well they felt they were superior and when they got to these other civilizations their first thought was how they could exploit it mm-hmm. how they could exploit the land the resources and of course the people and then they come back to you know whatever country they left from and they're just like oh i found this island you have to come with me and they bring all these other boats and all these other people and then you know next thing you know the entire thing is ransacked you know it's 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 awful but it, just like what you said is that people just fear the unknown or or anything that's different and change and so well and it's it's not even really so much the fear but the feelings of superiority yeah um based on only their status as Europeans, ideally white Europeans. Mm-hmm. 
Finally, in high colonial times, hundreds of thousands of people visited human zoos, created as part of the great international trade fairs. Here, they could watch whole villages on display, such as those of the Kanaks and the Senegalese, with real-life inhabitants paid to act out war dances or religious rituals before their colonial masters. The concept for these human zoos that were wildly popular throughout Western Europe in the late 19th and early 20th centuries stems from the idea of the ethnographic museum, a place where visitors could peruse artifacts from cultures around the world in an organized fashion. The presentation was made without commentary or bias, and the viewer could draw their own conclusions about the similarities and differences on their own. The purveyors of these institutions were interested in creating a unified version of human history. So this is what I'm talking about of the people who are just the the pure anthropologists mm-hmm. that are bringing artifacts back so people can look at them so they can have a better understanding of how other civilizations live. Absolutely, yeah. How they ate, how they drank, how they yeah prepared the food, how how they slept, how they marry, yes. mm-hmm. how they have children, how they grow food, how they hunt. So I'm sorry. So are you right? So you said that that they were put into like basically an expedition. Or I'm sorry, not expedition, an exhibit, and yes. are made to reenact something based on their cultural yeah, over and over talk. again. So like yes. I, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to, like, understand. Um, yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about the exact demands. Um, but essentially, they were, would capture, essentially, colonial imperialist groups would show up in countries and take entire villages with them and as slaves And what they would do with those slaves, rather than bringing them somewhere to work, was that they would take them somewhere and make them put on shows. Because I'm just thinking that a lot of cultures and a lot of like civilizations, they have these traditions, as everyone does. And those traditions are sacred based on the time of year, the type of day, the type of moon, um, worshiping the type of god or gods, whatever it is for that tradition. So you're telling me that they will be taken and put on exhibit, and then they would have to perform the sacred ritual of their of their culture every day for show, or multiple times a day yes. for show. Yes, yes. At that point, it's a disgrace to their tradition. At that point, now they're just walking puppets and doing the same thing over and over. Everything again. about this story is disgraceful and disrespectful. Ugh. Because we have to remember that the people who were putting these shows on did not consider these people to be human of same the same value yeah. that they were. Yeah. But it is the true heart of racism mm-hmm. is the belief that your life and your way of life is better because of the color of your skin mm-hmm. and because of your heritage and your culture. And this is exactly what was going on. And it was very well received. So because, you know, this was an era of exploration. It was an era of discovery of different kinds of civilizations. And there were, like I said, there were those who 
took keen academic interest and did not want to disturb because the truth of anthropology is observation. It's always observation and it's always asking permission. You, as an anthropologist, you ask permission to enter your facility and to enter your country, to enter your, your, your community. This is completely opposite. You're not asking permission for anything. Some of these people so, don't even understand the language. No, of course they don't. Yeah. If you've never... So we're going to get into so many pieces of that. Sorry. I'm, I'm like, my mind is, is going on. Like, my mind is going a thousand miles an hour right now. So 100% the reason why I've been sitting on this topic for about two months since I wrote this these notes out was because I knew it would fire you up. So I knew I needed to have the time to let you be fired up. <laughs> so like I said, we have these ethnographic museums, which are more of like a true anthropologic, uh, you know, they just show, they're more like true anthropology. They show discoveries just there for you to actually view. Yeah. But by the 1870s, these exhibits took on a new approach and incorporated humans into their displays, creating a human zoo, if you will. But very quickly, these exhibits went from being educational and unifying to being a way to show that Europeans were far better and far more evolved from such primitive behavior, creating the idea, of course, that Europeans were superior. So the... This wasn't in, done by anthropologists. It, it, there, there was some. That's sad. But those were well off paid. <laughs> well, I won't say well off, pay, like paid well. I'm not sure. But it was the intention was initially pure. Mm. And then just took a turn. And then it was exploited. Yeah. Okay. And I'm still, I'm still I think that it. the intention was pure, but what people's demands were reaction to it. No, it was it was like what people the way that the European society reacted was not in awe of another culture, but rather, oh, my God, like, I can't believe they live that way. Oh, my God, the women don't even wear tops. Oh, how do they go to the bathroom? The disgusting. They're animals. I think that it just stemmed from the the initial intention was to to bring people an idea of different cultures and to allow them to be awestruck, but that was not the case. They saw something different and they wanted to exploit it. And also, you know, many people when they see things that are different. They don't just accept that that thing is different, but they have to place themselves in their existence in a hierarchy with it. Like either that thing is better than me or I am better than that that thing. Do you see what I'm saying? I also don't like it to be like someone. Yeah, I, I don't like the idea of someone putting together an exhibit of these people and claiming it their own and, and it's your discovery and you're kind of like, hey, look what I have. Look what I found. I found all of these people and these different things. Check this out. Because you're kind of claiming that you like discovered or like you own a race or a community and a culture and a country and like all these things. And you're just like, that's not you didn't you don't these people don't belong to you. <laughs> but you're acting as if it does and you're acting like it's your own property and that you want to have people come in and enjoy and entertain from it. All of those things are true. 
All of those things are true. I'm sorry. I'll I won't interrupt and, you yes. for at least another five minutes. <laughs> I don't believe you. Um. Okay. So we have this idea of European superiority, and we're going to talk a little bit about where that concept comes from. In 1519, the Spanish conquistadors entered the Western Hemisphere, where they encountered what could be considered the very first zoo, a big one, a very big one, actually. It made such a tremendous impression on the Spanish treasure seekers that when writing their accounts, many members of the expedition wrote about the zoo more than they wrote about any other aspect of the city. This was Montezuma Zoo. Montezuma Zoo would have been the envy of any European ruler of the era. The collection was so vast that 300 keepers were required to care for the beasts. The menagerie also contained a section of different people. These were more along the lines of dwarves, people who had genetic disabilities, mm-hmm. um, gen- genetic deformations. But this trend can see be seen throughout history and around the world. The idea of displaying humans was not new to the Victorian era. Evidence of this type of presentation can actually be found in the tomb of Seti I, of the 19th dynasty of Egypt, Romans would display captured people for the public to view. Yeah. The Medici in Italy also collected a large group of people of different races as well as animals from around the world, mm-hmm. people speaking over 20 different languages. Mm-hmm. P.T. Barnum also exhibited humans uh, as early as 1835. Uh. If you, if you, as we have discussed, <laughs> yeah, look at one of our, uh, our one, like one of our episodes from 2018 about the, the yeah, circus. Right? Yeah, that's it's wild. By the 1870s, imperialism was at its height, as well as the curiosity about other types of civilizations. The human zoo was an enterprise that was truly developed by Carl Hagenbach, who was a merchant in wild animals. He found it expensive and laborious to care for the animals. So he imported people from the native lands of which those animals came from to care for them. He then found that the people themselves were also an attraction. In his 1908 autobiography, Carl Hagenbach, a human rarities agent, as he deemed himself, bragged that during a 10-year period, he alone brought more than 900 indigenous people to the U.S. and Europe for exhibition. 900. I would like you to that's, drink in that's it. the term human rarities agent, because that is a human trafficker, if ever there was one. Wow. I wasn't, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention to terminology. I was, was paying attention towards a number. Wow. Human rarities agent. So you can see how it was almost logical for him when he was importing animals to use people from that area who understood those animals to care for them. Mm-hmm. That's almost rational. That's logical. But then as he had those people caring for them, people started to watch them like the actual people who were caring for the animals. And then he realized that he could make a little more money. So then he started bringing the people. This is awful. In 1874, Carl Hagenbach had a display of indigenous Samoans and Scandinavian people. Mm. He then expanded to include animals and people native to the Sudan. 
The exhibits were so popular that they traveled throughout Europe to Paris, London, and Berlin. They traveled with these. It was a traveling show. At least some of them. Oh, my God. But, like, how how do you think they were kept while traveling? Probably not humanely. I mean, I think that... I was like, I'm pretty sure no one had, like, a, you know, a queen-size bed in a hotel, you know? Oh, uh, God. There was no showers, probably. Like, So, when was the shower invented? I'm, I mean, a watering hole. <laughs> I like your jump. Um, I would just say there were no bathtubs. You know, it's like you're thinking of like the 1900s. So you're thinking of like. Um, no, we're still in the 1870s. 1870s. So, so traveling with that many people, do you think it's by railroad? On we go. Okay. In 1877, the. Jardin d'Acclamation in France presented two permanent ethnological exhibits, one Nubian and one Inuit. And the park saw its attendance reach one million. <gasps> Shut up. And the because of their success, the park had approximately 30 exhibits from 1877 to 1912. The Parisian World's Fair in 1878 and in 1889 presented a negro village so they still had human zoos when the titanic took sail i think the last one isn't too far from there but they were definitely still still around around at that point yeah no probably not as many their real height seemed to be like 1870 to like 1900 that was like the real boom so, yes, these were still going on when the Titanic sank. Um, so, like I said, the Parisian World's Fair in 1878 and in 1889 presented a Negro village. This 1889 exhibit displayed 400 indigenous people and was visited by 28 million visitors. Oh, my God. But these exhibits were not just in Europe. In the U.S. and at the World's Columbian Exhibition, there was also a Little Egypt display. And there were also exhibits from photographers that featured photos of indigenous people from various areas in disparaging ways with insensitive type. They were cataloged as different species. So there would be books of photos of people from around the world. And underneath they would say, if you've ever looked at like historic catalogs of like different flower species yeah. or... Right. That's how they were characterized. So it'd be like so you said, Humanus Africanus or something. That's that's a word. So you said I, um, I just made that up. <laughs> so you're saying you said roughly twenty two million people came to you? Twenty eight. Twenty eight million. Okay. I just want to um I read an article earlier today about like, you know, of course, like COVID relatable, blah, blah blah. And Australia has about twenty five million in population. So just think that something that's larger than the population of an entire continent. Continent, yeah. Went to go see this human zoo. In 1889. Yes. So also, the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 saw 20 million visitors, many of whom came to see electricity for the first time, but were surprised and amazed by another stunning exhibition. And that was the people native to the Congo Philippines, as well as a member of the Apache tribe. These indigenous men, women, and children were brought to the fair 
to perform their backwards and primitive culture for eager American masses who could leave feeling a renewed sense of racial superiority. Due to poor record-keeping, backroom dealing, and a huge number of colonial governments that were involved, it's impossible to know the exact number of those who participated in the human zoo. But it is not small. At the fair, the indigenous people on display faced a number of challenges over the eight long months of their stay. African tribal members were required to wear traditional clothing intended for equatorial heat, even in freezing December temperatures, and Filipino villagers were made to perform a seasonal dog-eating ritual over and over just to shock the audiences. A lack of drinking water and appalling sanitary conditions led to rampant dysentery and other diseases. Two performers died on the fairgrounds that season. Filipinos, whose bodies still reside at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm shocked that it's only two. Like, like I'm so sorry for those two, but really only two in these conditions and in this, like, it's... Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Others, including kindergartners from Arizona's Pima Indian tribe, were shipped home at the first sign of sickness. What happened after their return was not the fairest concern. In most cases, there were no bars to keep those in the human zoos from escaping. But the vast majority, especially those brought from foreign continents, had nowhere else to go. Yeah, exactly. They don't speak the language. They don't have money. They don't have any sources of survival at all in a country they have never been in before. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Continue. Sorry. Oh, my God. These individuals were set up in mock ethnic villages. These indigenous people were asked to perform typical daily tasks to show off their primitive skills, such as making stone tools and to pantomime their different rituals. In some shows, indigenous performers even faked battles of tests and strength. Human rarities agents, those are the men who acquired these specimens for the circuses, expositions, and other events in the West, were essentially middlemen feeding this popular form of entertainment. Some agents were religious men who had begun their work as missionaries or early anthropologists who lived in and studied distant communities. Others were merely entrepreneurs who sought to capitalize on the public's desire to gawk and objectify. All, to some degree, were human traffickers. Perhaps one of the most heart-wrenching of these stories is the story of Ota Benga. Ota was a young man, a native of the Congo Free State, a member of the Mobuti tribe, and a pygmy. His life and story are not easy to hear. One day, when Ota was out hunting, his village was attacked and his wife and two children were killed, likely due to the brutal force used upon the Congolese people by Leopold II of Belgium, who used the natives as forced labor to harvest rubber. Later, he was captured by slave traders. He was eventually purchased for a pound of salt and a bolt of cloth to Samuel Werner. I'm sorry, what? Yes, so he was purchased for a bolt of cloth and a pound of salt. Pound of salt. He was purchased explicitly to be exhibited. He and his companions were brought directly to the St. Louis World's Fair, where they were an immediate success. In particular, the visitors were curious to see his teeth, which had been filed sharp in his youth as part of ritual tribal decoration. 
he was displayed as a man-eating cannibal, and people were charged to see his teeth and to be photographed with him. You would think that people would be afraid. Right? It's like, you know, I understand the filing of the teeth because I've read Mm -hmm. that many, many times. At the same time, if a man is exhibited with that type of thing, you would think that people might be afraid of, ooh, like, oh, but no. Instead, they're like, oh, okay, okay, cool. Let's like, let's take a photograph together. Let's. These people that are being exhibited for money, I, I understand their feeling of there's nowhere else to go. They don't have money. They don't have assets. They don't have connections. They don't have, they can't speak a language. They have no idea where they are. I get that completely. Also in this particular instance, so when we're talking about Orabanga, like he is probably the most popular story of the people exhibited. And his life is tragic already before he is even captured. He lost his entire family while he was out harvesting rubber. While he was out harvesting rubber, his wife and children were murdered in their village because their village had not harvested enough rubber. He was then captured by a slave trader. That slave trader then sold him to a man to exhibit him. And then people are paying money to take photos. To be honest, the man that exhibited him was probably the nicest person that he had come across in a fucking age. Is the sad part of that. It's probably like, yeah. I'm just I'm just upset that people are they are so willing to take a picture with someone that they don't know. This is a curiosity of epic proportions. It's just like they they feel like it's a joke. Yes. Yes, of course they do. Look at this tiger showing his teeth. Let me go and take a picture with it. <laughs> you never That's- know when that tiger is going to react to the condition that they're in. And it's sad that, like, they weren't afraid. So Otabanga never bit anyone because he was not a cannibal. Yes. I, nothing you've said is incorrect. But um, maybe he was one of the first cases of Stockholm Syndrome. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But Otabanga was loyal to the man that purchased him. After the St. Louis expedition... Oda traveled back to Africa, and he and the other men were returned. Oda stayed with the Batwa tribe and married. His wife soon died of a snakebite. Whoa. Oda felt stuck, trapped between two worlds. He felt he didn't belong anywhere. He eventually returned to the U.S. with his previous captor, Werner. So now he goes back of his own accord. That is exactly like the the Penum Barnum's uh, circus one that we had one of the uh, of the freak show the episode we did. Someone left the show, try, married, tried to have his own life, and then um, his wife passed away. They didn't have children, so he went back to the show. He's like that. He's like this is it. Like this is my choice, and that's the thing. It's his choice at this point, right? So at this point, it is his choice. He chooses to come back with Werner. Initially, Oda was hired by the Bronx Zoo to help with the animal habitats. But eventually, the director of the zoo, William Hornaday, created an exhibit for Oda to be displayed in. He was displayed in a cage with chimpanzees and was labeled as the missing link. 
I'm sorry. Did you say the Bronx Zoo? The Bronx Zoo. As in New York Bronx Zoo? Yes, ma'am. The New York one that's yes. about 25 minutes away from us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bronx Zoo. The suggestion, of course, being that he was closer to an ape than to the men who paid to see him. Because of his teeth? Yes, and his size. Yeah, his his, fi- his filed down teeth. Yeah, okay. filed down teeth. He was a pygmy, so he's small. He shot targets with bows and arrows and wove twine all day and was forced to wrestle with an orangutan. That's not safe. (laughs) Are you kidding me? It is certainly not safe. When objection to this practice was raised, the mayor at the time, George McClellan Jr., sided with the zoo director and felt that this incident would be remembered humorously. There was much controversy and the exhibit was eventually discontinued and Odo was relocated to Virginia. He was provided with American-style clothing, and his teeth were capped so that he could better fit in. He began his education at the nearby Baptist Elementary School, but quit when he felt his English was good enough. He began working at a tobacco factory with plans to return to Africa. And then World War I hit, and it was impossible to get a passenger ship. Banga became depressed as his hopes for a return to his homeland faded. On March 20th, 1916, at the age of 32, he built a ceremonial fire, chipped the caps off of his teeth, and shot himself in the heart with a borrowed pistol. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the black section of Old City Cemetery, near his benefactor, Gregory Hayes. At some point, the remains of both men went missing. Local oral history indicates that Hayes and Otabanga were eventually moved from the old cemetery to White Rock Hill Cemetery, a burial ground that later fell into disrepair. Banga received a historic marker in Lynchburg, Virginia, in 2017. This is just one of the stories. I'm sure there are countless like it. And these types of permanent exhibits did not last long in the United States, but they did continue to be popular in Europe. The Royal Museum for Central Africa in Belgium began as a temporary exhibit in 1897. Remember, as we mentioned earlier, King Leopold II of Belgium claimed direct and sole ownership of the Congo Free State, and he started this particular exhibit at the museum, and he referred to it as a human zoo. King Leopold imported 267 Congolese men, women, and children to be displayed behind a fence. Later, he heard that the individuals who were part of the exhibition were getting sick from candy that was being thrown to them by the crowds. His response was to hang a sign that said, don't feed the animals. Honestly, with everything that was going on in the Congo at the time, they were probably better off eating candy in the the zoo. Mm -hmm. In Hamburg, Germany, Hagenbach, as we talked about before, who was kind of the king of the human exhibition, had another display. These zoos were discontinued by Germany in 1931. This led to a difficult issue for the performers who had families and a new life in Europe. They were now a people without a land and belonged nowhere. They were heavily discriminated against. As World War II began, they were not allowed to fight for Germany and their children were not allowed to join the Hitler Youth. They were instead left to work in factories. They were not sent to concentration camps simply because there were so few of them that they were not viewed as a threat. The end of human zoos was not brought about by outrage at the inherent racism and mistreatment of humans, but rather as the years just prior to World War II 
people became less fascinated by the sensation of it all and rather concerned about the world's political crisis. So the end of human zoos comes about not because people stop going, but merely because a world war is underway. And in America, there is some outrage to situations such as that of Otabanga, but it was not, we were not screaming from the, you know, rooftops to stop doing it in Europe or anywhere else. So, yeah, it's just, you know, and then their, their focus was on something else, right? Yes. So that is the story of human zoos and the tragic tale of Otabanga. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. Sorry. Right.